Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I am your host, Jake, and thank you for joining us this evening, Saturday, March 30th, 2013. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and, of course, with me, as always, is founder of Dose Nation and uh, co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Jake. Thanks. Yeah, uh, so good uh, to be back again, and I hope everybody had a good week. Um, let's introduce uh, tonight's guest right off the bat, because this is a topic and a conversation that I really want to get into. Uh, tonight's guest is Dr. Ken Hildebrand, who ran for the 5th District uh, for Congress in Virginia uh, in this past election. Uh, he's been speaking about elections, politics, uh, domestic policy, foreign policy, and many, many, many more subjects for the past 12 years. Uh, he's he's dedicated himself to these topics and to the... Um, progression of truth so i'd like to uh, welcome him to the program ken, ken and i have been friends for uh, for a couple of years now so ken how are you welcome to uh, dose nation hi jake hi james doing great how are you very good so let's just jump right into the first topic um because this i think that this is an important one and this is one that i had really never thought of until it came to your campaign when you were talking about this you know as one of the talking points of your campaign and that's the use of industrial hemp is a biofuel and is, you know, uh, a way to uh, make clothing and a lot of other different things. I mean, what are the uses for hemp? And I know that you have a very strong position on this, so why don't we go into that first? Okay. Well, the uses are just, there's just, there's too many to list, really. Actually, in that, uh, in the February 1938 issue of Popular Mechanics, they said there was 25,000 different uses. And back then, they called it a billion-dollar crop. So we're talking something that uh, really, I mean, from from textiles to uh, to paper to uh, to biomass. I mean, it just goes on and on. That why we're not using this plant is just uh, it just shows once again how that people just don't know about it. And well, here, uh, I have like a, here's the answer for the go ahead. Yeah. Um, so. It looks like right now there is a, a new wave of interest in hemp legalization. I saw a news article just today that Kentucky is set to be the first state to legalize hemp production. And uh, recently the GOP Senate leader Mitch McConnell came out publicly in support of looking to legalize hemp production on a federal level for all 50 states. And... Um, I think people do recognize that there is an issue here and there is a bellwether. I think my question is, people have been talking about industrial hemp for such a long time now. What do you think is the best way to deliver on that promise? Now uh, that we're looking at, looking into. Well, I mean, it has to happen on a federal level. That's why everybody's sitting there on the states. But and say, we're, say we're in Kentucky and industrial hemp is legal today. How do we get that billion-dollar crop going? What are we What are we looking to, to do with that hemp? Well, farmers are, are scared to take that step until it's legal federally because otherwise the federal law overcomes state law and they can just, the feds can come in and bust them. So it's, well, it's in, risky. In, in Washington, marijuana is legal, and we have people looking into a nascent uh, industrial hemp market here based on the fact that marijuana is now legal. Um, it may, we have a, a, a czar, a state czar at the level to 
look into the regulations for legalized marijuana and hemp production. Uh, so this industry is is really, I mean, in the in the beginning of starting to get moving here in America. I mean, we've got at least two or three states that are looking to legalize quickly, and we've got talk in the federal government about legalization. So my question is, it looks like legalization is going to happen. I mean, it looks like it's going to happen. It's, we've been talking about it for a long time, and it looks like we're on the crest of something moving forward where it's actually going to happen. Where does the industry start? I mean, I want to kind of get an idea of where this industry starts when we're growing hemp. What, what are we looking to do? Is it, is it solely textiles? Is it fuel? Is it materials? What do we get into first? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, as far as where the production goes, it's where the demand would go. I would think that um, as a biofuel, that's what's facing... Uh, that's what we, as humankind, we need to, we need to somehow get off of our dependence on foreign oil, um, and oil in general. And so, uh, that's where I think that it should steer first. I mean, if we could be growing, if we don't really know, there's so much as far as how much you could put per acre, uh, how much biomass per acre and so forth. Um, from what I understand, it is the better it's the best of the crops, really, because, I mean, you can probably get as much as a, a, a couple of uh, crops. You might be able to get two crops a year. So you are you can get the, the fuel from the seeds, and you can also get it from the biomass in the stalks. And these plants get to be pretty high. So you're looking at something that, that really can uh, really can produce. Um, but as far as where the calling is with textiles, I mean, I live in a area that used to be Danville fabric area, you know, there's so many textile mills down here, but they're all closed. I mean, Clinton got us involved in the World Trade Organization and NAFTA, and we lost all these jobs, you know, overseas as a result. And this could probably, with textiles, make us more uh, competitive on that front if, if this was in fact, legal. But the Kentucky bills, I understand, they're saying, well, you know, here it is and we've got it, but we can't do anything about it until it happens federally. So, um, I mean, I hope you're right it, that it's inevitable. Um, but after working for the last 12 years uh, towards this, I don't take anything for granted. <laughs> I think there's a, there's, a, there's a prevailing sentiment right now that the American economy needs a kickstart or needs a kick in the pants, yeah. needs something to jumpstart it. And yeah. people are looking for a new industry to create the next bubble. And there's some murmuring, at least on the conservative side of the aisle, that hemp may be, there may be money to be made in a hemp bubble. From a purely yeah. profit motive standpoint, how do you feel about that, about like big corporations getting into the hemp movement? Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, of corporations, but you're going to see everybody. The thing is, I, I would think that as far as hemp, I live in a very remote area here in, uh, in Southern Virginia and everybody could get involved. So, I mean, you could have, uh, if it was legal, uh, you, you know, you're sitting here and, for example, I mean, we're on seven acres and we're not wealthy. <laughs> That's just how it is down here. So people have property and they could really, uh, I think you could see the, the small person get involved too. But you're right that we do need that economic shot in the arm. That's what I brought out during the election. This is it. I mean, if it was called a billion dollar crop, in 1938, 
it's been estimated to be a trillion or even a trillion and a half dollar crop. Right. I mean, a billion dollars in 1938 is, 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 is a lot more then than a billion dollars is now. So exactly. it brings up a good point. I mean, it really does. I mean, it, and I mean, if, 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 if this could help us, if this could help us, if, like you said, from, from even a conservative standpoint, as, as far as economically, you know, that's why the party I ran at, at, I'm not even a member at Independent Greens, but they have a slogan that, um, that, you know, is fiscally uh, conservative and socially responsible. So there's some areas we need to be conservative, and we need to be conservative with the, um, Earth's resources right now, and, and we can't just sit here and, and spoil the earth while we continue. I mean, we're really living in an interesting time in in, in history, but it, it's uh, it's not looking good for the home team right now because the, the corporations are running the show. And um, when you put profit over people, a lot of really devastating things can occur as a result. Well, that's well, yeah, that's true. That's a, I mean, that's. I think that's my point. If hemp is legalized at a federal level, don't you think the companies like Monsanto and Dow and 3M and anybody who has anything to make off of chemical agribusiness will be the first pre- people invested? I mean, if it, if it really is a trillion-dollar industry, they're going to want to get that trillion dollars first. I mean, they're not going to be interested in subsidizing small farmers to grow hemp. They're going to be looking at, you know, industrial-scale hemp production. Is that right. is the hemp movement ready for that at a at a, like that at that scale? Does that when the when the corporation corporations actually become movement? Could they become part of the movement? No, I don't, they, I, they become the hemp movement. The corporations become the hemp movement because they see money to be made. Geez, I hope not. <laughs> I'd like to see them phased out of most things since they've created so many of our problems. I agree with that, but um, no, I mean, and I think that that's an interesting point, James, because you know one of the issues. Because when you think about it, who's going to be manufacturing industrial scale biofuels? Who's going to be manufacturing industrial scale textiles for shipping overseas around the world? Is it going to be small community farmers, or is it going to be big corporate agribusiness? Well, the hope is that it would be small community farmers, but the issue is 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 going to become that. As you pointed out, there might be some of these companies like Monsanto, like like Dow, like you know, et cetera, et cetera, that are going to dig their claws into the into the movement at its roots. So, Ken, it, do do you think that there would be any way to kind of prevent these corporations from gaining a monopoly on the industrial hemp it's certainly business? Certainly, something to to look at. It's certainly something to look at. I'm no, no, I mean it it's. And and that's one of the issues because I mean the hemp movement has been a pretty grassroots movement. I mean all throughout. Um, the, you know, it's, it's history. So, um, you know, there is a risk that if it is industrialized and legalized, that it, that it would end up turning, you know, it would turn into another big agro business like, like James is pointing out. So do you, do you think that there are any ways to, to maybe prevent that? I mean, I, I'm not sure, um, unless there were companies that began to spring up specifically for hemp, hemp production, like the activists themselves got the capital together to release to that would be to that begin would be these companies. Nice. Yeah, right. But you know, the question is, what is what is the ratio of that happening versus the ratio of Monsanto just buying up the farms? You know, so well, okay, we better we better we the people better stand up to Monsanto soon, <laughs> like like they have in other countries, and we're not. Uh, good old President Change signed on the dotted line, giving them more. Uh, uh, well, that was kind of something that was slid into another bill. 
That was last week, right? Where um, he signed for them. Elaborate? Yeah. Elaborate oh, it's for. Oh, okay. There was something that was. Uh, I think it had to do with an agri bill, and they kind of slid in something protecting uh, Monsanto. Um, kind of giving them free reign, but as far as what was on the internet and so forth, as I understand it, this is something this, this it's for a fiscal year, this bill, so it's going to run out in October anyway, so we need not panic that much. But Monsanto is, is pushing and pushing, you know, uh, further and further to control our food, it sounds like, to me, and that's scary. It really is. I wouldn't want to see a company like that get involved. This hemp used to grow wild all over the place around here. So, right. and I, think I mean, the it, it, would it, be, yeah, the fear would be like a genetically modified hemp with a terminal yeah, gene or that, that's yeah, specifically that's, for industrial farming and it won't spread like a, you know, like a, an invasive weed. Yeah, it's a scary thought. We don't, I don't want to see them take control of that. So, I mean, it's definitely something, it's definitely something to give thought to. I think that as far as the machinery, that's why they call it a new billion-dollar crop. There was some kind of machine that they came up with. This was back even in the, before the 30s that would help, uh, um, that made its cultivation more more practical or, you know, what in the harvesting and so forth. Right. So if it's legal, you can see a, there may be a whole new line of uh, machinery or uh, factory or right. pro- processing equipment. That grows up around right. the the, uh, right. the industry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's costs. I for you know I've looked into the ca- uh, Canadian costs and so forth, and there's so many restrictions on it because of the U.S. because we import a lot, uh, some of it, and um, and those restrictions end up shooting them in the foot, and then they end up making it cost more than it really should. So Canada has an industrial hemp. Economy, they it's legal for them to make cloth or on some scale. Up in Canada, yeah. So what's what's the uh, do you know what the market is for that industrial hemp in Canada? Well, no, I mean, well, that's what they're saying. It, it, from what I understand, is they've put so many, like I said, they put so many restrictions on it. You know, as far as like the no, you know, no T, they don't even want to be able to find the THC, and it. it's just going to have trace amounts of THC, and. um you know, it's like the, you know, Big Brother getting involved too much, and, and it's kind of made it not work as well. But, but here's it, my question it, about the THC regulation. It's not like somebody's going to buy a, buy, a, buy a hemp sweatshirt and then cut it up and try to smoke it and get high. I mean... Right. Well, I, well okay, well, well, maybe I could see that happening, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but yes, that is something I could see happening. But, I mean, most, most, mo- I mean, for the most part, I don't think that that, I mean, I don't think that that, that, that should even be a concern. You know, uh, um, it's a, I, Ron Paul brought up. You'd have to smoke something like uh, the size of a telephone pole to get high. I mean, there's just no way you're not going to get that. You're not going to get high from industrial hemp. So, it, but what you're saying is, in Canada, the regulations and red tape have sucked most of the profit margin out of the industry. From what I understand, they have to jump through processing hoops or regulatory hoops to make it meet the standards. Some of that's because of the U.S. That's some of that's because of the U.S. standards, though, because they want to be able to to export it here, and you know, and the only way we can import it is if it if it meets all these criteria. So it's been, I think, it's been because of us that they went to those lengths. This is something I've only looked into recently because the news broadcast was coming up. 
Well, I still haven't looked into, you know, completely. But I did touch on it and saw that that was, that was part of the problem. So once again, you got to look out for the bad guys, making it worse, <laughs> you know. I mean, there has to be certain, I mean, I mean, restrictions, it depends on what they're there, what they're placed there for. And in this case, it seemed like it was silly because of this THC thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, as far as their, go ahead. No, I, I, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, the, the, like you said, the THC content in hemp is not high enough to get high on. Um, and who cares anyway? Yeah, you know, and that's the other thing. Who cares? Who, I mean, who, 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 who cares? Um, whether, you know, and look, whether or not someone personally chooses to use it is their own decision. If they say, I, you know, I don't want to use marijuana, that's, I, I, I would say that that's just as good of a decision as saying, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter, matter either way. It's a, it's a, it's a personal decision and I think it should be left that way. And I mean, as far as hemp goes, uh, first of all, if you, you know, you're, I mean, if you do try to smoke, you know, your sweatshirt made of hemp, you're probably not going to get high. And the second thing right. is, is that if, if you did want to do that, and I mean, who cares if, anyway? I mean, you're, you're, you paid for the sweatshirt and you're the one ripping it up, so, you know. Yeah, so I want to dig into this issue a little bit more because it seems to me that in the first place, hemp prohibition was, the reason for it was driven by a few factors. One of them was um, hysteria and paranoia. That had to do with um, racist distrust of black people and, and Hispanics. But the other thing was this push from corporations like Dow Chemical Company to nudge hemp products off the market so synthetic products could monopolize like, like pulp paper or synthetic yeah. fibers and clothes. Now, yeah. now, now that those are not such an issue, it seems like the major driving force in prohibition or hemp prohibition is still this lingering hysteria or this morality argument. And that's why you see things like the THC clause because it's, it becomes a morality argument instead of an economical argument. Assuming that that morality argument is, is losing its legs. I mean, cause since we see, you know, medical marijuana laws and uh, marijuana decriminalization laws, that I think that morality argument is, is sort of losing its legs. So now that that's, that's going away. All we have left is this industrial monopolization argument, um, keeping it out of out of the legislation. And now I think we're seeing a turnaround on that. Corporations want that new industry to monopolize. So I'm not sure that THC regulation thing is going to stand. I mean, I think I think people are going to agree to produce industrial hemp with the knowledge that people are not going to be smoking it. There's much better stuff to be, to be smoked. To be out smoked, there. right. I mean, you know, and it's, and I mean, I mean, look at the state that you live in, uh, James. I yeah. mean, I mean, marijuana is not, I mean, not only is there a medicinal marijuana program, but there's also, you know, legalized marijuana. So, I mean, why would someone try to smoke their hemp t-shirt if they can go out to the dispensary if they have a medical license or if they can go buy it at a store if it's legal? You know, I mean, well, I mean, so I think that that whole clause is, would, would, would lose its leg anyway. And, and I think the other thing is that you're right. It is based a lot on the morality argument. And, I, and I'm not sure how you feel about the morality argument, Ken. I mean, I, I know. Well, I know. I, I, the morality argument, is, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I have a very strong uh, feeling about that. And that is that it's immoral to have it illegal, especially when you're, when you're having people, you're sending them to live in violent cages. We have over 750,000 arrests for a plant every year, and, um, and this is a terrible waste of our resources, too. So here you are sending people to live in violent cages, and you're wasting resources. So, you know, you're, 
you have missing children. There's like, say, 500,000 a year estimated. You'd be finding more of those kids if you weren't looking for people for possession of a plant. Imagine if we dedicated pedophiles, rapists, all. So we basically live in a more dangerous world than we need be because of this drug war, particularly because of the the war on on cannabis. I mean, look, Uh, if if they spend, we're giving a we're giving a a perfectly good industry, which is which is the, the pot and hemp industry. I mean. We're pushing it underground and giving it to, you know, criminal gangs. You know, it's yeah. funny that there is no criminal hemp industry. It's just a criminal pot industry. So, yeah. <laughs> to well, me, you're looking like at bigger, a- you're looking at big, you, you got that massive quantities of it, it'd be harder to hide. <laughs> and they, you know, they, the, the pot, they can, they can hide, they, they grow it in their basement or whatever they do with lights. And they don't really have to to harvest the fiber. You need you need much more acreage than you need just to harvest the flowers. Exactly. You're right. Yeah. So I think that's why you're not seeing the. uh, uh, Yeah, but then you're talking about processing plants and so forth. The other one. Yeah, and if it's an illegal market, you can distribute. (laughs) You can't make an illegal textile cheaper than you know cotton or wool. So. But you could probably make hemp cheaper than cotton and wool. So, yeah, so, but yeah. I mean, but Who's I mean, how how big is the illegal? I mean, the illegal textile industry is like the illegal tobacco industry. I mean, how big is it really? You know, not it that wouldn't huge. Be. I don't even think it exists. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, there is an illegal tobacco market, so to speak. You know, people are not supposed to go to Native American reservations and buy tax-free cigarettes. Like that's illegal. To no, no, no. But I'm talking about I think it. more often that it's. Um, shipments of containers of of cigarettes are stolen and then sold on the black market. That's how you get an underground tobacco. Oh, oh right, right, okay, okay. But uh, yeah, you don't. Of course, to- underground hemp. You're not going to find that. I mean, it's just it's too big. It's too big to happen. It's like an underground uh, tree market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have an underground pine tree market. Or so, can't they? Huh? An under yeah, it's like having an underground Christmas tree market or something. Yeah, yeah. It would just be I mean, too big. They, they can get, they can get big. They can get tall. So well over ten feet. Now, I so. mean, and now, 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 here's the other question. I mean, how many agricultural jobs would be created through the legalization of? I mean, it, it, it just would help us all the way around. Though I don't see how we could miss. Really, all of a sudden, you have all this. I mean, we knew people down here who had. Fields and their fields, and they're paid not to grow on those fields. That's what they're right. paid and for. Hemp is one of those things get, that can grow in um, really adverse environments. So this country has nothing but wide open spaces of land that can grow yeah, weeds on it. And it's been it. estimated that, that this is something that has to be verified. But it has been estimated that six percent of the area's land mass would provide all of our energy needs. So even if that's just that's not true, but it's partially true, or maybe it's you know like it could maybe say one sixth of our land mass could produce half of our energy needs. That would certainly be a good start in the right direction. You're talking about something that's totally renewable, whereas oil takes 
thousands, you know, tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands. The other thing is, is that if you use hemp in conjunction with other green energies, such as air, you know, um, solar panels or these other types of things that they have out there today, and there are a lot, you know, there there are so many of them out there, you could provide the all of the energy needs or almost all of the energy needs of the country through a um, through um, an energy policy that that embraces and combines all of these different. Uh, well, Germany has closed energy. down a few of their nuclear power plants, and that's been um, something at issue here, particularly in the fifth, because they wanted to. Uh, they had a thirty-year ban on mining uranium here, and they wanted to to break that end that ban, and uh, that's just like some rich people because I, there's no uranium mining signs all over this district because nobody wants it. Because it, it could end up really wrecking havoc with farmland for probably millennia to come, really, if, if something went wrong. And um, so you really never know if that's safe or not. But uh, but that's the thing is that the one example that was given is that Germany, as far as it might not even be feasible uh, or it may not be desirable economically, the, the uranium in the area because of the the example uh, of the in Germany that they've been closing nuclear plants as the nation's becoming more green. So right. we're not and the thing about nuclear, here. the thing about nuclear energy is not only is there so much uh, that goes into mining and so much uh, waste that goes into turning over the earth to find uranium. There's so much radioactive waste that has to be stored afterwards that you're going oh, yeah. to deal with for thousands of years, and we're dealing with that exactly. at, the Hanford, at the Hanford Waste uh, Dump here in southern Washington. We have containers of radioactive waste that uh, constantly crack open and leak and have to be repaired, and these are huge underground containers filled with radioactive acids and 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 they just you know they just they're just there, and they're going to be there, and they're going to be radioactive for thousands of years, so... Nuclear is not a good solution. It's not a good solution in the long term. It just creates more Well, it's something that came up in the district that I'm running in, particularly because they wanted to build, they wanted to, uh, to mine right next, in the next county over. And this is all forest where I live. Right. And, uh, you know, the the byproduct. Forest and farmland. Yeah, the byproduct of hemp fuels would be, you know, you get the same kind of carbon that you get from normal, normal fossil fuels, but, uh, yeah, the byproducts basically biodegradable. Everything biodegrades and goes back to the earth. Whereas with nuclear, it's it's not biodegradable. And also, you have the, the process of photosynthesis to help absorb a lot of that CO two that you're emitting. Mm-hmm. So, oh right, yeah, the uh, the uh, the hemp itself fights the greenhouse effect. Right. Yes, yeah, and that's a good that's a good way to close the cycle on that as well on that carbon output. Yeah. I mean, we got to do something. We're heating up. It's pretty dangerous. Yeah, if you could create hemp, if you could grow hemp to offset the carbon that you produce by burning hemp fuels, that is a perfect sustainable fuel. (laughs) It is. It's it's genius almost. Yeah, it's really. It used to be illegal in the state of Virginia not to grow hemp, by the way, but before the nation was founded. But, okay, so uh, what, other, what other topics did you want to talk about today, Ken? I know that you brought well, up elections you, I'm as well. I'm looking at one of them right now as I'm sitting in my car, and I'm looking at this this plane that left this trail that's now proliferating across the sky. 
And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, as somebody who's over 50 years old, I haven't seen that in this, until, in this life, until rather recently, these proliferating trails. Now, whether that's being done to block the sun's rays or what it's being done for, I don't really know. But it's something that, that I think we need to address. This is apparently a real expensive campaign that's going on. Now I'm talking about chemtrails. And there's yeah, nothing and weird I know about a little it. bit about trails. I know a little I'm bit sorry, about what? It. I, well, I know a little bit about the chemtrail phenomenon. I know that they exist. I read meteorologist reports that say that there is um, high-altitude spraying happening over certain weekends, and they're pretty sure that there are military projects that are happening. Um, from what yeah. I understand, the high-altitude spraying is usually something to do to offset weather patterns, and mostly dry weather patterns, I think. that's that's, And you can actually look up reports showing that there have been projects in the past where high-altitude spraying was done for things like cloud seeding to... Oh, yeah. To block, you know, to block the sun's ray, especially during the middle of summer when crops are at their most precarious for drying out. So I don't know how uh, covert this program is. I don't know how open this program is, but I know countries like Australia have very aggressive spraying programs because I think central Australia is just completely drying out. The farmland of central Australia is just being ruined by global warming. And I think trying to fight it with these, with these high altitude aerial things. But the geoengineering, chemtrails, high-altitude spraying, it remains a little bit of a mystery to the general public what's going on up there. Nobody in government is talking about it. No, they're not talking about it. Well, Kucinich brought it up in the Space Preservation Act of 2001, and the term was stricken from an update in 2002. And there had been bills in both houses of Congress, Senate Bill 517 and House Bill 2995 pertaining to weather modification without public oversight. Now, both were shot down, but this is still going on anyway. So they're doing something. I don't know why they don't just... You can even smell it here in the forest, especially in the valley, after they spray. And it just smells... It doesn't smell natural. Like somebody came to a a yard sale we had, they introduced themselves. I said, oh, we're not even here to buy anything. We live on the other block, and we just wanted to you know, introduce ourselves and so forth. And I started talking about the chemtrails, and he goes, haven't I been telling you about that bubblegum smell? He said to his girlfriend. Uh, do people describe the smell differently? Some say pesticide-like, whatever. All I know is it doesn't smell natural in the woods. <laughs> and the stuff falls. It's heavier than air, and it's going to fall, and people are going to breathe it. And it's been, they're shown to have high levels of barium and aluminum. We're not supposed to be breathing in barium and aluminum. So why are they keeping this whole thing covert? The chemical contrails program on the Discovery Channel, in that program, they admitted briefly that after the sprayings, after the reported sprayings, there were high incidences of, of people in emergency rooms with respiratory ailments. And I met this guy, we were at, a, at this function outside of Barbara Boxer's office trying to bring awareness to chemical contrails. Uh, not chem, I don't want, they're not contrails, <laughs> chemtrails. Right, they, contrails they, are they, natural, natural, um, yeah, I just, I, 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 form in the wake of high altitude jet, jet. Right, contrails. I made a mistake, it just that they called that, that program on Discovery Channel chemical contrails, that's why I said that. 
Oh, okay. Not, but they're not really contrails at all. They're spraying something out. These are not condensation trails. Condensation trails take like a matter of seconds to dissipate. These things proliferate. So it's a big difference. I don't know how we could live in a world with this. If they're spraying, and then the next day they're spraying, and then the next day, you know, it seems like they spray. Uh, they fly actually right over this tobacco field behind our house, right over it. That's their pattern. And one day they spray, one day they don't, and the next day it looks like the old-fashioned uh, vapor trails. And it's the same craft. You can see that. And so why, why, how would atmospheric conditions vary that much to cause the same craft one day to leave absolutely nothing and another day a proliferating trail that covers, covers the entire sky? It makes no sense. And who's paying for this? This has to yeah, be, it has to be question. probably the most expensive military campaign in history because it's ongoing. I mean, I've been watching it for at least the last 12 years or so. I know it escaped me for a while. It's just because and it's not that I'm all that uh, aware of that, but I have, look, you know, I have a reflector scope. I like looking into the sky, and all of a sudden, I've seen these trails that I just never seen before. Now, do you remember? I think it was maybe uh, 20 years ago when people started talking about the hole in the ozone layer yeah. caused by CFCs. Right. These chemical spraying programs started shortly after that, I believe, yeah. Yeah, as, a, as a response to try and repair the damage in the ozone layer by right. blocking these high-energy ultraviolet particles by spraying light metallic dust into the air, basically, um, which you know, which does a variety of things. It protects the it protects us from ultraviolet rays. It creates clouds causes cloud seeding, and uh, they're, they're, they probably spray different formulas on different days, depending on the environmental conditions. Some scientists somewhere came up with this program, and they've been running it, and I don't want to say that it has been a success, but you don't hear as much about the damage to the ozone layer. In fact, you scientists will, will tell you that the, that the ozone is improving, even though our growth carbon output on the planet has not dropped, it's gone up. So hmm. there is a lot of geoengineering going on behind the scenes that we're not really aware of. We don't know right. what's going on. We don't know how it's being paid for, but something's being done up there. And uh, who's to say whether it's good or bad? I know it's not good for the people it falls on. Um, that's definitely something that we could, I think we can well, all agree on. If they're spraying yeah, anything, respiratory. If, it's, if it's heavy metals, if it's pesticides, if it's weird gases, None of that is good for us when it falls down and gets into our water. So exactly, there are ramifications to this policy that need to be looked at from a public policy standpoint, not just from you know radical geoengineering to meet a crisis. So we, it's there's there's a lot going on there that needs to be uncovered. I think anybody that goes into Washington trying to uncover this though sounds like a kook, right? Because. That's just the going line. Chemtrails. Well, you know, but if, if as long as you're there saying, hey, we don't know what's going on, tell us what's going on, that's not kooky. That's just we want to know. I just got done reading a book um, by Richard Dolan and this other, he was co-authored with uh, somebody I wasn't familiar with. But anyway, it was called After Disclosure. And it was talking about UFO disclosure. Mm -hmm. And at the end, they're saying that the authors are saying, 
you can talk about anything. As long as you talk low and slow, it's like your references and so forth, you're not going to sound crazy. I mean, I can cite the bills that have been in both houses of Congress. I can cite the, the 1972 issue of National Geographic that had a cover story were doing something about the weather. And they admitted then the cloud seeding. They admitted that they cloud seeded in the eye of um, a hurricane, Hurricane Debbie in 1969 in Florida, and reported this is through Project Storm Fury. And they reportedly slowed its winds by, like, as much as 31%, they said. So if they could do that then, why haven't they, why didn't they do that with Sandy? Why didn't they do that with Katrina? Why didn't anyone ask? You know, they could, what they do is they fly into the eye of a hurricane and spray. And what happens is it's kind of like a skater throwing her arms out, or his arms out. And then that slows them down. So they spray in the eye, and then that helps that, that the, the ice crystals go out, and it helps to slow the whole thing, twisting. Now, they had another article, uh, Scientific American, I forget what year, but it was in the 2000s, 2006 or something like that. And they said, well, um, Project Storm Fury had ambiguous results and so forth, but in 20 years or so, we're going to spray in the eye of a hurricane, and... And I don't know how they expect us to swallow this stuff, because they had already done it decades before. Uh, but it's just amazing how... I, I've got to bring this up. It is my favorite, one of my favorite quotes by Noam Chomsky. that we live entangled in webs of endless deceit in a highly indoctrinated society where elementary truths are easily buried. Nobody knows what's going on. I think that here that's, you have, know what, by the way, that, that, a that's a great quote. Campaign that's a great that's quote. being done right in our faces. And nobody has a clue as to what's going on. I don't have a clue. I would at least have the guts to go, if I get elected to Congress, at least to, to stand up there and say, uh, look, we need to look into this um, to the other people. But, uh, but there's other more concrete, not that this is not concrete, but there's other things I can look right at those people and say, look, stop it with the marijuana. I mean, I know we're on the road toward recovery, or it, but people are still being arrested and being sent and taken away from their families and their friends and sent to live in violent cages over a plant. It's still happening today. In you know, it's not legal yet. The battle isn't won yet. <laughs> you know, you know it, it, it's just... The battle, uh, you know what, but see, the battle between those who want to do good and those who want to control will never end. It will never, it is a never-ending battle. battle and those who want to do nothing seem to outnumber those who try to control and those of us who are, who are resisting. It's those who are sitting there and doing absolutely nothing. That's what we, I, I think, yeah, that our biggest barriers to a more reasonable society are not our, our ignorance, which is media-induced to a large part, and, and apathy. I mean, what, what else can you do? I mean, the people being spread, you look up and they'll go, so what? You know, how do you get the people really... You know, I hope to get in Congress to get people active, to show the other people, like, look, we're going and we're... we're inefficiently going about this whole thing. <laughs> you know, we could be growing our own oil, and we're not. We're engaged in wars overseas, and we don't have to be. 
And now we have a real mess that's stirring over in, in Korea, and I don't know what's going to happen as a result of that. <laughs> but these other these other messes that we got involved in, we didn't have to get involved in. Afghanistan and, and Iraq, which are now the two longest wars in U.S. history. So um, we're heading in a bad way. The average person is getting shafted. The average person doesn't really even care or doesn't seem to care. Well, you know, I, I and I and I'll give you a reason why the average person doesn't seem to care. And I and again, this is my opinion, and this you know, and and you can take it or leave it as a grain of salt. But the average person is there's this thing that we have created in America, which is called the rat race, and we're all racing through it, and we're all doing it. And by the end of the day, the average person is so unbelievably frustrated, tired, and like, you know, utterly pissed off, and I'm talking about like the working class guy, that he doesn't give, uh, he doesn't care to read the news. And it's unfortunate that, that people have been sucked into this cycle of every minute of every day is filled with some kind of obligation or work thing or this or that. I mean, I see these people who work from like nine and then, you know, uh, get to work at seven o'clock in the morning and then will stay until eight o'clock at night. And to me, it just, I mean, it seems like insanity. It seems like banging your head against the wall. Well, and, and that, there's another piece to this too, which is when good people do uh, get elected and go to Congress, they find that they can't get anything done because they're banging their heads against the wall there too. Right. Because it's all go along to get go along to get along and play the game, and don't well, that's do any new bills unless you've got the you know unless you've got a lot of favors that you're ready to cash in, and it takes years to get those favors to get anything done. So the system in general is rigged a little bit towards not getting anything done unless it's a crisis. So well, in, in my go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you say that people are not getting involved. I don't think that's fair. I think even when people do get involved, they hit roadblocks and they're shut down just because of the way the, the, the system is, not because of the, like, the people in the system. Well, I'm not talking about the people in Congress. What I'm talking about is the average Joe, the average mm -hmm. Jane, who's not getting involved. And, so and what is the average Joe and Jane supposed to do to stop chemtrails? Chem I mean, they, they, they lobby their congressperson. Their congressperson tries to get something done, and then they're shut down by the, you know, an oversight committee or, you know, somebody above well, them. Basically, well, my research, that, that my specialty, if anything, is elections. And we, and to be honest with you, we don't have anybody in here there who's really been for, well, we've had some people who've been close, like, like this in some ways. But most of them have been corporate back. They, they, you know, even in a congressional race, my opponent raised almost two million dollars. So, uh, you know, that's, that's hard. They, they claim that this compromise in Congress to me is just, you can't compromise with people's lives. There used to be a chiropractor and I saw the people coming in, like you say, Jake, that they, you know, they, they work the whole day and they're exhausted. And then they're wondering if they're going to be able to even keep their job. Yeah, and that's the worst part about it. And then you have those who are on public assistance who are kept in this kind of continual loop of public assistance because when they try to get a job, then their benefits get cut and they can't survive anymore. So they got to go back on the benefits. And then, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. And we keep people in this system of, 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 of oppression as opposed to allowing them to 
be who they are, exist in the present moment, do all these different things, and think about what's going on around them, and not only what's going on around them, but how how we should treat other people and how we should, uh, you know, um, do do the things that you're talking about and have that empathy, um, and also to have that concern not only for yourself and for your own family, but for, you know, the person living next door, the person that lives down the street. Uh, and, and, and I know, uh, you know, and, and, and you know Noam Chomsky, Ken, and, and, and one of the things that I had, that he had said in an interview that has always stuck with me, he said, you know, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing very badly here, but it was something along the lines of, you know, people in America, we only care about whether our kid goes to school. We don't really care about whether the kid down the street goes to school. But we need, to, but yep. we need to be concerned about whether the kid down the street gets an education, just like our child does. Definitely. And and that was a wonderful quote from a very wonderful man. And I thought if that I was could great. Paraphrase one of his: if uh, if not get it on, he said, at this stage of history, either one of two things is possible: either the general population will take control of its own destiny and concern itself with community interests guided by values of sympathy and concern values by <laughs> values of sympathy and concern for others uh, or alternatively there will be no destiny for any of us uh, um, to follow we better start becoming involved with our neighbor I kind of messed up the quote toward the end sorry about that Noam <laughs> and, and listeners but <laughs> the, the point is is that we really do need to start um, seeing us uh, one another as brothers and sisters instead of uh, oh that person down there got a free sandwich you know because they're on public assistance and this and that well look nobody likes that anybody's on public assistance but Clinton got rid of all these jobs with the, the World Trade Center and NAFTA uh, you know, the World Trade Organization, not World Trade Center, World Trade Organization and NAFTA, and and then what are the people going to do? I mean, around here, somebody's better off probably not working. Everybody than wants working. to in, in yeah. some instances because they're you know they, they at least that way they get a check and they don't have to. Uh, I mean, it's really it's a terrible situation. But you know, we got to remember that corporate welfare expenditures are. You're far greater, several times more than social welfare. And, and that's let, something that should be abolished. And now. let me add the other thing is that these people who always talk about how, oh, well, you know, America, you know, the, you know these, the neoconservative, you know, uh, evangelical types are, oh, you know, America founded on Christian values, but we're all about capitalism and crushing our, you know, our fellow man. You know, whatever happened to these principles that the, the, the you supposedly embrace of love thy neighbor and give to the poor and all these other things? Well, whatever happened to that? Well, that got thrown out the window. When people realize that they could make a, that they could make an extra dollar by instead of loving thy neighbor by crushing their neighbor under their boot in the pursuit of money. So, and that's one of the things that you and I had spoken about. Um, is, is, is the, you know, I mean, and I think it also comes down to the immeasurable amount of greed that is, that is, that is, that is rampant in American society and is rampant in, I think, societies, uh, you know, or, or, you know, a lot of industrialized societies across the world. But I, I think America specifically is, you know, and, and other countries, but, um, you know, and, and even on a grassroots level, I mean, it's, it's, what I find so interesting is that there are people who will actually fight against their own interests. You know, sure. people will support these big corporations and fight against their own interests. I mean, it sounds, it's just insane to me. But um, anyway, I'll, well, get off, I'll get off my soapbox. They're, <laughs> they're, they're basically allowing us. I mean, the media, to me, they're the ones who are, are at the forefront. And to me, my emphasis has been elections because unless we have, Charlie Reese, a syndicated columnist who's retired, uh, he's from Florida. 
and he uh, he wrote an article entitled 545 People. And he argued that all of our problems come down to those 545 people. He was talking about the, uh, the member, the, the Senate, the House, and the, uh, the President, and the Judiciary. Well, there's nothing we can do about the Judiciary, but everybody else, I mean, the Congress can be replaced every two years. Are we going to allow another election where somebody who is going to win because he spends $2 million and somebody who, or somebody like me who just recruited effort? But I got in late last time. That's one thing, too. So I hope that effort, because I spent, what, I spent $303 in signs plus whatever gas and ink. Now, this guy beat me by 30-some times, but he spent a 1,000 times what I did to do it, you know, over a 1,000 times what I did to do it. So, I mean, we better start getting people in there who don't sell out. Because this compromising on Capitol Hill is something right. That so, so how do you get people into Congress without selling out? What What do you have to do? Run a Kickstarter campaign? I mean, well, I've Obama, been trying Obama to... apparently got elected president without taking large corporate contributions. It was all apparently small donor. I mean, except for his super PACs or the the PACs that were that were behind his his advertising campaign. But you you want people to to get involved and run in the elections and go up against these guys with a two hundred with a two million dollar war chest. How? I mean, how do you do it? Effort. I mean, you've got you to get people. You've got to get the people where effort can overcome money. I mean, if you've got mass effort, that's why people really need to understand that. They, they need to know, all they need to know is a pretty simple message. You can say you cover five, like at myelectken.com. I don't have very many issues there. But if people understood those issues, they would realize that if they're voting for this other person, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I don't think it's a very complicated message. So, I mean, I remember when I spoke for Nader in Texas in 2004, I said, you know, just because if you had to choose a doctor and you had three doctors to choose from and you knew that two of them were terrible and they took hammers and smacked their patients, uh, you know, every say uh, two out of every ten or something, would you pick that doctor just because they advertised more? I mean, you, you know, it, it's just, it's ludicrous. These people who, <laughs> they really should have this, the, uh, like the NASCAR drivers, they should really have the, the labels uh, stuck on them. And I mean, and, and Obama's corporate back, big time. And well, to me, now he is. Yeah. He was never really, well, I don't know. I never really fell for his, <laughs> his whole, the whole Obama thing. I just never, uh, I mean, because I was involved and I saw that, first of all, he just stood there when, <laughs> when the others were being censored and he didn't say anything about it. The, the debates were slanted towards him and Hillary with an occasional uh, throw to here and there to Edwards. They basically left the others out of the debate. You know, they, they had Wolf Blitzer in that. Well, that's another thing. I mean, we could you're talking about elections. If you want to get dig, deeper down that rabbit hole, the way that the debates are structured and who gets invited to debates and who gets to choose the moderator and all of that, that's a very inside game, too. I mean, that's not something that the average person... Very just, inside game. That's been what I've just, been really... They can't just step into that as an average person running on a simple platform and say, hey, I want to be included in this debate. You need to have the big campaign with the big backers and the big money and the media not, exposure. Not necessarily. I mean, in this district platform. here, in this district here, 
um, I got a percent and a half. Next time, if I if I pull, see, they didn't have pulls that included me. If I pull at 10%, I'm in. So if I can pull at 10%, then I'm in. And if I'm in, then how are they? They can't defend themselves. You know, they don't want me in. It's like when Noam debated the Chomsky debated the Dutch Minister of Defense, the guy just ended up looking at his watch and he goes, I got to go to a, a <laughs> laughing audience. Because these people, they, I mean, if you had somebody real in there in the debates, I mean, they, they would just get chewed up and spit out. You mean someone who isn't just uh, spitting out target-tested uh, yeah. thin lines? But are actually somebody, who was, somebody who wasn't a puppet. Right. With a, with a bit of guts behind them, too. I mean, really, if you go back, they say, well, Nader was a spoiler. I'm not really a big fan of Ralph Nader. I don't really like him, personally. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's going on the record here. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, I mean, he has his faults. I mean, he's a, very, he's a crusader, but he's also a little bit of an egotist. So, yeah. Nobody's the point is, can you imagine if he had debated somebody like W who couldn't even string sentences together at the time? <laughs> So I mean, so 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 who really spoiled the election? Well, those who withheld it from it. He was he was met by these uh, Gestapo-like uh, police, and and he couldn't even he, they didn't even let him watch a debate. I have other footage on my YouTube site, the YouTube Doctor Ken Hill debate, and you can see you can see people getting arrested, arrested for wanting the shit in the audience and watch a debate that they should be in as a right. See, this is where you have to have the citizen outrage to say, look, you people start, you know, we rent the airwaves to you and you give us this garbage back. We rent the airwaves to you for nothing and you give us this garbage back. If you don't include all the candidates, then how can you say that that's a fair election? It's, it's, it's ludicrous because you have the, the two public candidates who were really like practically indistinguishable, except maybe on the you know in certain issues which they they you know make them bigger than they they really are, um, and they neglect all these other issues. They neglect that they neglect that we can have peace in the Middle East if we just stop uh, favoring Israel um, and their aggression. And so we're not against Israel. Let them survive. Everybody thinks that Israel is a state has a right to survive, you know, even Al-Qaeda. So go back to the pre-67 borders, get a get a, a, a reasonable agreement, and we need to get this world setting in a better way. And as long as we have these corporate candidates, puppets, who are in these, these uh, you know, 545 positions, then we're going to continue to spiral down and maybe pass the point of no return. We don't so what know about that. this? What about this trend of people who are leaving Congress after one or two terms because they're sick of it? They can't get anything done. There's too much obstructionism and there's too much, like you say, these party politics where you have to follow the lead of corporate lobbyists, or you're not going to get any backing when you want to get something done. There's well, there is a lot of insider that they're back. It's too bad that they're backed by those that it takes that kind of backing, and it really shouldn't take that kind of backing to win an election in the first place. Now, I know I got to, to uh, meet Granny D uh, only on the phone. Now, she walked across the country between the ages of 88 and 90 for campaign finance reform. 
And, um, and what happened was she told me, she goes, I wasn't really walking for campaign finance reform. I was walking for publicly funded elections. But if I had a sign saying that, nobody would know what the heck I was talking about. Right. So, um, she, but she said that in 27 states they had pending legislation. Now she passed away at age 100. So here's a woman. Now there's a woman who's an ordinary citizen, Doris Haddock, aka Granny D, who've really gotten involved. You have some people who are really getting involved and working their butts off, and then there's others who are so caught up in the, in the giants versus this and that, which is really meaningless in the grand scheme of things. I mean, completely meaningless. Has no bearing on our lives whatsoever at all. And they know all about that. They know how often these guys, you know, do everything they do in their lives. And, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. The the amount of knowledge that goes into the, the sporting games. And here, and the real game is being missed. Yeah, the political you know, game? The game for survival for humankind on planet Earth as we spin through space together. It's just it, it's it's crazy. Now, what and, about and, what about Citizens United that basically says money is speech, and if you want to have political speech on a national level, you need the money behind you to make that happen. I mean, you can't just put put up a sign and expect people to pay attention to you. You need no, to have money. I mean, you need to have the whole package. Well, you here's what I have during my election: you need to have the flyers. You need to fly all around. You need to. You know, shake hands at every, you know, two, three places a day. All of that takes money. I mean, well, yeah, well, I mean, I covered the district pretty well. And we had something here that I that did for a tree lift. I had, when we tried to get, you just have to get a couple of go-getters. And we had enough people where I had a down pine tree here that was 70 feet long or 60 feet long. And... I tried to lift it myself. Of course, I couldn't lift it myself. But we all stood there, and we grabbed on both sides of it, and we lifted that tree. And I showed it that the reason why that was done was to show that we can do together what we can't do alone. And we ought to be able to recruit, recruit massive amounts of effort. Look at the, the massive amounts of effort Obama recruited on the, on the basis of nothing. I mean, he said change, but it was just, it was meaningless speech. If you, if you looked into his policies and all, you realized he wasn't at all into, into change. Well, he's a very passionate and convincing speaker. I mean, let's give that to him. He is. He didn't have nothing. He's, 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 he's a very attractive man. the best man actor we've ever had for voice. president. Yes, he's a very, he's a very attractive man, charismatic with a powerful voice. He could change minds with his words, and I think that's his power. And um, we, I think that a lot of times we expect too much from Obama. Um, because he is so, he is so powerful when he speaks, but that doesn't mean he, that translates into political power behind the scenes. It's, it's, you know, it's a different set of skills moving from the, uh, the, the campaign stage to the, the back rooms in Congress where you need to get deals made. Um, so it's, uh, so well, if I you think, had to, give, if really... you had to give people one bit of advice about how to get involved and, and make, turn their passion into activism and get into politics, what would you do? Would you say run for Congress? Just map out your district and run and just do it? Well, that's, that's one, one avenue to take or find out who's running and back who's ever running who makes sense because in most districts they have people from the Green Party or, or maybe a, a a libertarian, you know, I don't agree with all their views. Um, I don't really agree with all the views of the Green Party either, you know. <laughs> um, 
but at least start steering in a, in, in, in a more reasonable direction. I mean, to me, uh, you know, Obama is just a monster. I mean, really, with the drone attacks and, and, uh, just, I mean, he's just against every, uh, he seems to be going against everything that he stood for. And, um, you know, I never thought that I would really, like, uh, be so disgusted with a president worse than Bush, but I am. And, uh, I don't, I don't want to, like, he's an actor. <laughs> Is, is what he is. And, and you know, why didn't he, why didn't he with this healthcare thing, why didn't he allow public option on the table? You know, that would have been the answer. That would have covered everybody for less and left the middlemen out. I don't think he He's could been. have gotten anybody from the other side of the aisle to agree to that. And it was, uh, well, we could have got people from the other side of the aisle, maybe not in Congress because they're all puppets in there. That's the problem. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the problem that he ran up against. Well, but he never, but he, but he was part of the problem, too, you know, because he didn't allow it in. He could push for something. He wanted it. You know, I mean, if he wants well, us yeah, to get involved in Libya, we get involved. If he wants right. us to get involved in Egypt, uh, you know, we get involved. He can get what he wants. If he wants well, see, to, the president you know, has sit on the, the fence. With, to do certain things without the approval of Congress, but other things he can't do without the approval of Congress. And... You know, he's really oh, good exactly. at doing the things that he doesn't need congressional approval to do. He's very good at that. The things that he needs congressional approval to do, he is—he just can't get done, almost, except for health care. And even that was a fail. I mean, even that was just a half package. It wasn't even what he promised or wanted. So, um, To me, it was yeah. a matter between corporations in America making you get corporate insurance. That's just insanity. I mean, to me, it was just a, a real horrible thing, and I was somebody who was involved in healthcare. Well, you have to. I mean, you have to give it. You have to at least admit that the government cannot run a successful insurance program. I mean, they've they failed every. No, I, I as, as a former practitioner, I can tell you this: that when I got involved, this is what I said when I was interviewed by Chris Hurst uh, at a Channel Seven in Roanoke. I said when I got involved, Medicare was the worst insurance out there. When I left, it was the best. And it wasn't because it had gotten any better. It's because all the others got worse. <laughs> that's Definitely. a brilliant story. Yes, that's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for our times, I guess. So, I mean, you know, I I don't agree. I don't give Obama any any slack at all. He's been a, he's been a terrible man. There's been so many. I've, I've read on my plastered on my uh, refrigerator uh, back what I put out when. Um, when Obama was being inaugurated, something I put up on Facebook, and I showed up this kid with the drone face. Only she was still smiling. You know, she'd been attacked by drones. She was still, her face was deformed, but she was still smiling. And I said, from I have a dream to I have a drone. Mm -hmm. And this guy is just not, I mean, he's the, he's the antithesis of Martin Luther King, <laughs> really. And and what has he done? He also mocked, um, this was originally, because he, he had these virtual town hall meetings, and he said, anything you want to bring up, you can bring up. And and well, the number one question that was brought up was, marijuana. why don't you legalize marijuana to help our economy? He turned the question around completely to saying that they asked His Holiness if he thought it would help the economy. No, no one asked His Holiness if he thought it would help the economy. They told him he w it would, and they asked him to open up his mouth and do something about it. So, see, I just don't believe in that compromising uh, with human lives. I can't do that. I was a former healer. 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, well, well I'm, yeah, I'm getting too much pressure, you know, James. I, I mean, I can't, I'm going to have to start smacking every two patients out of 10 with a hammer because, you know, I, I'm just under this pressure. I, I, that's just not a way, that's just not unacceptable. And that's what Obama's done. You know, it, it, he's just, uh, and, and he's been instrumental in other, uh, in, in, Escalating the secrecy with NDO, NDAA and and taking our rights away and it's just uh, you know the, the people better get active fast because our, our rights are slipping um, our environment is is going down the the tubes uh, you know humanity is living great at the tipping point of whether or not we're going to survive or not anymore. Okay, I got one quick last question. Yes. 2016, Hillary and who? Oh my. Goodness gracious! I don't Hillary, know. Hillary versus I, Jeb Bush. I, I, you know, to me, you're like asking if you know we should have Gehring or Goebbels. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to. We got to wrap it, it up I, there. Yeah. Do you do you see any good third party candidates on the horizon? I always see good third party candidates. I always see them. And I've documented it in my, my book. If you go to oftopconcern.com, it shows a lot of candidates. We usually have them, but they're almost always marginalized, and that's the problem. So, Ken, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about where we can find um, more information about you, or where we can uh, find out more about your book, and okay. so on. Well, I have the book. I haven't published it yet. It's in the process. It's at oftopconcern.com. And, and electken.com, which will also bring you to my video website if you go to, or rather the, the YouTube site. Well, Ken, I gotta tell you, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a fun show. It's been a fascinating conversation. It was a good discussion. Yeah. So, Ken, Well, thanks for having me. Anytime, Ken. We'll have to have you on again soon once you uh, actually uh, get, get the book out there and so on, and we can talk more uh, specifically about what's in the book. So. Just let me say this to everybody. We're all in this together. That is very true. You know, and uh, we really got to look at it that way. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, look, you know, uh, if we don't look out for each other, who is going to look out for us, you know? so That's uh, true. Well, uh, James, any closing comments this evening? Just watch out for the chemtrails. Yeah, that's true. Don't breathe it in, because if there is heavy metals in it, that stuff is not supposed to go into your lungs. No. Not supposed to be eating aluminum, but let's breathing it. Yep, that is very, very, very true. Thanks, so, James. Thanks, Jake. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming on, Ken. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. Of course, with me, as always, was uh, James Kent, founder and co-host of Dose Nation, and, uh, of course, Dr. Ken Hildebrandt. So make sure you check out electken.com and uh, check out some of his videos. There's, there's some really interesting stuff on, um, that he has up there, so... All right, we will see you next Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. You, uh, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation. And uh, look us up uh, and, and look up our website and follow the uh, RSS feed uh, on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store, look us up, you'll find us there. You can, you can subscribe to it and get all kinds of updates and information on the website, the Facebook page, and Twitter. So get involved that way. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all next week at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good night, everybody.